I'm Amy Shields. I'm Mark Frost. Hi, I'm Kimmy Robertson. So our Twin Peaks Unwrapped, the book, is currently out at bluerosemag.com. It is $19.99, so get your copy today as supplies are very limited and will be running out very soon. So if you haven't got your copy today, go to bluerosemag.com today. Thank you for your interest and for your enthusiasm and, and keeping Twin Peaks alive. I'm your host, Ben Durant, and beside me... Brian Kazaska. Hi, Brian. Hey, Ben. It's been a week. It's been a week. <laughs> <laughs> and we have another fantastic show today. Another one. We are going to be covering the Georgia Coffee commercials. Oh, man. I feel like this is kind of like our last of the twin, old Twin Peaks that we had left over. You know, like, mm. we've been covering a lot of stuff, and it's kind of nice that we have one little nugget of Twin Peaks left to talk about. Yeah, it is kind of nice. And on top of that, we also got a hold of the guy who played Ken, the, the Japanese police officer who worked with Cooper. It's Log Lady time. Okay, Brian, we are up to episode 21. It is a physical organ we all know, but how much more an emotional organ? This we also know. Love, like blood, flows from the heart. Are blood and love related? Does a heart pump blood as it pumps love? Is love the blood of the universe? Ooh, this is a deep one. It is. This is a deep. This is a deep cut. <laughs> this is about as strange as the dog uh, one that she did. I, to me, I think this is better than the dog one. You think so? I could. This is nice. This is like pure poetry. That's something you you, you would uh, put in a card and send on Valentine's Day, Ben. <laughs> It really is. It's sweet. You some... know, they say how the answer to everything is love. You know, you got... All you need is love. All you need is love. The Beatles, you yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right? If everybody could just love each other, love and understand each other for like half a second. The world would be a better place. It would be. Is love the blood of the universe? It will seep through the darkest held walled in places 
cracks will form and love will power through, right? Yeah. What is this episode about that we can correlate this to? Very beautiful, very gentle woman. Her name was Carolyn. She and I fell in love. She was a forbidden love. I mean, she was married to Wendell Merle. Right. You know, Cooper was there to protect her. And because he was there to protect her, they kind of fall in love. Do you think Cooper will find love in the new series? I want it to be Annie. I, I thought Annie and Cooper were adorable. Really? Yes. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I thought they were no, adorable. No, Audrey, come on. No. <laughs> come on. <laughs> I don't think Cooper is going to be with Audrey in season How three. dare you? Get out of here. <laughs> You're kicked off the show. No. <laughs> Why not Lower Palmer? Yeah. Yeah, no, no, is that, no. Is that the true? I mean, because he has his fantasy. I mean, he, he dreams about Laura. Mm. And if I can remember correctly, you have in Firewalk with me, all these men who supposedly loved Laura, the dad, the boyfriends, they were no good to her. Mm-hmm. They used her. Cooper, who never met Laura in his life, mm. saved her by just being a good person. And yes. I think there was this connection and right. like a love for her on this different kind of plane because I felt like all the other men used her physically mm. and emotionally where Cooper was pure. Yep. And he has that for everybody. And I think with Laura was yeah. was love and he saved her and she saved him. Right. And I think it's kind of like the ultimate love, right? You save each other, yeah. you help each other, you're there for each other. And how cool is it that Cooper was there for her and he never met her? Yeah. My favorite scene still is Albert's doing the autopsy and, you know, gets into a fight and then he walks away and Cooper takes Laura's hand and he places it back on her. But to me, it was like he's... He's caring for her. Even he's like being a garden angel. Yes. You right? Oh yeah, he's with the angels in Firewalk with me, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So I kind of feel like that could be this whole love thing. Because the universe brought Cooper and Laura together mm. without them ever having anything to do with each other. Right. I think you're mm. kind of saying this already, but it doesn't have to be a sexual love thing. Yeah. It's kind of like oh, yeah, I, just, yeah. uh, I think sex and love are two different things. Mm. So I think love in this sense is just this like, genuinely caring for yeah someone. caring some and he cared for her and he didn't know her and she showed up in his dreams or in this lodge and was helping him because they were connected and she knew this guy could help find her killer mm. so i think we there's have to a ask john there. about the john thorne about this sometime but mm. i think in the original firewalk with me script it was like a sex scene between Laura and Cooper. I don't know. It's oh like, Lord, that would have been know. horrible. I was to ask John more about that because John's got the the original script, so wow. we will have to ask him about. That. But it's not the way I look at it. when I'm saying love. I'm yeah. thinking just oh yeah, I agree with you. These two yeah, 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 yeah. A death mask. Is there a reason for a death mask? It is barely a physical resemblance. In death, the muscles so relaxed. The face so without the animating spark. A death mask is almost an intrusion on a beautiful memory. And yet, who could throw away the casting of a loved one? Who would not want to study it longingly as the distant freight train blows its mournful tone? Oh man, that's a depressing one. 
in this Log Lady intro, it really is specific to this episode. I mean, at the end of this episode, episode 22, Cooper goes back to his room, his hotel room there, and there is a death mask laying on his pillow. Can I it again when he lifts it? It's a tape recorder. Oh, the tape recorder. And Wyndham Earl basically taunting <laughs> Cooper. Cooper with it. Yeah. So I guess it's this preserved memory of her face. My question is, why did Wyndham Earl have it? Did he did he kill her and then say, "I gotta get a plaster"? I know we, we can't overthink. We that. can't overthink it. Wyndham yeah. Earl, he's a man of many mysteries and many costumes. I think Wyndham Earl to me is like a Scooby Doo villain. Yeah, he can just do whatever he wants. Right. I don't think Lynch liked that at all. He was I... not into the Scooby Doo villain. I when I watched it originally, I had no problems with Wyndham Earl. I thought he was fun, and I, I thought he was yeah. a villain. I wanted. More of a showdown between the two of them. And I think it was written that way and it never came about. So I think I would have liked to have more interaction between Wyndham Earl and Cooper at the end. But I I also can't complain about the the end of episode 29 either. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. So is there a reason for a death mask? After her passing, he took this mask so he could have it for memory. Why don't you just take a photo? I don't know. So was this his plan all along? I'm trying to remember. It was like three years had gone by when he was in the institution. Yeah, I know. So who knows? He's crazy. And where's the light? You know, there's a light coming from it. Yeah. And he lifts it up, and it's just a tape recorder. Where's that light coming from? (laughs) Breathtaking, wasn't she? A truly beautiful woman, Caroline. Funny, isn't it? After all this time, after all that happened in Pittsburgh, I still love her. And I know that you do too. Now, Dale, listen carefully. It's your A hotel. A nightstand. A drawer pull on the drawer. A drawer pull on the drawer of a nightstand in the room of a hotel. What could possibly be happening on or in this drawer pull? How many drawer pulls exist in this world? Thousands, maybe millions. What is a drawer pull? This drawer pull. Why is it featured so prominently in a life or in a death of one woman who was caught in a web of power? Can a victim of power end in any way connected to a drawer pull? How can this be? And the answer to that is, well, if it's brought up by David Lynch, it sure can happen. <laughs> no, right? That's how... Yeah, that was like well, the one feedback on this episode was, let's put Josie in a drawer To this day, most people, most fans of the show, are still kind of puzzled by it. It's weird. Okay, it's Lynch's idea, which is great. I'm going to say almost kind of poorly executed. Hmm. That weird digital face that pulls out. Yes. It's like CG. Right. Before CG. It's like Lawnmower Man uh, yeah, CG. Yeah, sure. You know? Sure. It, I mean, that's really around the same time, relatively it, speaking. Yeah, but it's an odd 
thing. Well, I mean, I really feel like Lynch loves wood, and I think he just liked mm. the idea of her Josie being going con- into a piece of wood. Maybe, and but being connected, uh, forever stuck in this place. Mm-hmm. And I'm so disappointed with her character, because I saw a potential for her. And I always think of this, I'm sure I've said this on the show before, but I always love the scene where she's in Ben Horn's office, and he, Ben Horn has a key, and she has a key, yes. and they're both saying, "I'm gonna bury you. I'm gonna bury you." She seemed like she was like very strong, yes. and that she was. I love that scene. I love that, and I feel like why don't we get more of that throughout the rest of the series? Like we, she always came off weak and always scared, and she always seemed like she was in trouble. Yeah, but I never felt like she rose to that same moment again. Yeah, as too bad. I think she would have been a great villain. I think she could have been a really. That was a great scene. Yeah, that was, and it, it was kind of. I'll go back to the Looney Tunes. It was like, I have a key. I have a bigger key. I have a bigger key. You know, they kind of just kept going. But it was a cool scene. And I'm just, I just don't know why a drawer pull. What was running through Lynch's head to say drawer pull? So it seems like her spirit left her body. Like they'll say later on, maybe it's the next episode, that she weighed less. Like she wouldn't weigh as much. And I think the idea is that (laughs) the spirit holds weight and I think it had something to do with that, but I think the idea that her spirit left her body, and so her spirit went into this drawer pool. Or everything weighed on her so much, because she died of a heart attack? What? I mean, she, fear. Fear. I mean, I think the idea is that she she died of fear. Fear and love opened the doors. What you saying? I said fear and love opened the doors. Two doors, two lodges. Fear opens one, the black, love the other. When we get to the Georgia coffee commercials, I want to revisit this. I'm going to try, I'm going to make a, somehow I'm going to try to make a connection to Josie. Oh man, this is going to be rich. <laughs> I don't know. It's going to be weak. It'll be, it's going to be weak. Is it going to be weak coffee or rich coffee? <laughs> Maybe weak coffee. Oh man. No, but I do want to revisit this. I want to talk more about okay. Josie's fate when we get to Georgia Coffee Commercial. Sometimes, well, let's say all times, things are changing. We are judged as human beings on how we treat our fellow human beings. How do you treat your fellow human beings? At night, just before sleep, as you lay by yourself in the dark, how do you feel about yourself? Are you proud of your behavior? Are you ashamed of your behavior? You know in your heart if you have hurt someone you know. If you have hurt someone, don't wait another day before making things right. The world could break apart with sadness in the meantime. Do unto others as you would want to be done to you. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say it, but backwards. (laughs) Do to yourself what you want others to do to you. Yeah, there you go. There's the motto. It's true. Also, I, I think this is kind of bury the hatchet. You know, life's too short sometimes. Two people aren't getting along. You don't want to wait to bury that hatchet before it's too late. And I can connect this. This is a great metaphor for the straight story, which we'll be doing in a couple weeks. Ah, Do you yes. know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. Yeah. This could be in the back of the box 
to promote the straight story. Pretty cool. And to talk about this episode, we have uh, Ben Horn, who's trying to do right. Mm-hmm. And he's going to Donna's mom and talking to her. And It is interesting how he wants to mend something, but he, in, in, in the same time, he's causing trouble. He's yeah. still causing trouble. <laughs> Do you he know? Is. You know? Yes, he's making the things worse in his own way. Yes. Yeah. But in, he, I think he he has feelings. He has uh, regret. He wants to let it all out. He wants to let it all out, yeah. but not realizing he could hurt others around him unintentionally. Right. Because when he's trying to do good. Yeah. When he's trying to say, hey, I haven't been there, and I should have been there. Donna had no clue. Donna was happy knowing her her parents are her parents. Then he comes along, right. I'm your real dad. That's not for him to say. There might be some regret that he was never there for her. Yeah, I know. You know, I mean, like, that's her, his flesh and blood, even though she had a good upbringing. Yeah. I mean, so that's it for this week on the Log Lady intros yeah. there. We are coming close to the end of these intros. Those are some good ones this yeah. week. Definitely some good ones. It's nice to see that some of them were connected to the episodes and some of them are still just good l- lessons to l- live by. Or Yeah, and if you have any theories about the, the drawer pull in Josie, please email us at twinpeaksunrepted.gmail.com. I want to know what other people think about the drawer pull, and if we get a couple good ones, maybe we'll read them on the air. And now, guest of the week. <laughs> So for this, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Georgia coffee commercials. And in between these commercials, we're always going to have Taka on to interview him to talk a little bit about. He played Ken in these uh, commercials. So I thought that's how we would do this. And it's interesting. A very American name. Taka? No, Ken. (laughs) (laughs) It's the most American name you've ever heard in your life. Ken. I know. Interesting choice of name for So bringing that up, so let's give us some history here. And I I got a lot of this history. Thank God for Wrapped in Plastic, John Thorne, Craig Miller. They really did their homework. They were on top of this commercial when it first came out. They had a lot of great information. And you can also get a lot of information on John Thorne's book, The Essential Wrapped in Plastic. So I really recommend, if you can't get a hold of those Wrapped in Plastic issues, John in his book has a whole section on Georgia coffee commercials. So in 1992, David Lynch directed four Georgia Coffee commercials. Now, David Lynch has directed many commercials. He has. He's done all sorts of stuff. He's done yeah. about cleaning up New York, perfume. And- yes, and, and the Blue Rose shows up in one, in a, I think it's a perfume ad. Ah. And it's like 20 minutes, and there's a Blue Rose in it. That's awesome. My favorite David Lynch commercial, PlayStation 2. Ah. Before the PlayStation 2 hit the shelves... David Lynch director commercial. You can find it on YouTube. It's just amazing. It's crazy. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't for a video game system. What is this? <laughs> love it. I love it. It is good yeah. stuff. You know, Fire Walk With Me was kind of a failure in the United States, but in Asia, it was really popular. People really dug that movie. They were into mm. Twin Peaks. Georgia Coffee asked David Lynch to come up with four commercials surrounding Twin Peaks. So the basic storyline of this is... We have this guy, uh, Ken, who's a Japanese police officer who goes to Cooper and basically says, I always thought it was his girlfriend. Lynch on Lynch. Lynch might say that it's his wife. So it could be wife, girlfriend, but he's basically, she's gone missing and he's asking for Cooper's help. And his name is Ken. His name is Ken. (laughs) 
So the first commercial Lost first aired at 6.59 p.m. on January 20th, 1993 on all the Tokyo TV channels. Before Asami disappeared, she sent me this postcard from Great Northern. When they searched her room, all they found was this picture and this dear head. Let's think about this over a coffee. No, Lucy? Incredible. You two have got to try this. It's rich. Man, oh man, this Georgia is damn fine coffee. It's true. What about this deer head? Notice the symbol, Ken. I think you and I should take a drive. Big Ed's gas farm. Georgia. Finally, what's so impressive with this is it's 30 seconds. There's a lot, I mean, Lynch is somebody who, he could spend 30 seconds on one shot. And here he's got to tell a lot of information in a very short period of time. And you know what? I have to say, this is just shows the genius of Lynch. He can do anything. When he's working with other people's money, he knows how to bring it. Mm. And I think when he's doing stuff on his his own, he knows how to do that too. But we got a whole story in 30 seconds, fast-paced. You got your favorite characters. Yeah. And you got the deer head. You got everything. Yeah, all kinds of references, yes, right? I mean, it's wonderful. Right. So, yeah, it starts off with the road and the sign of Twin Peaks. And then we get to a close-up. Ken saying he got a postcard from his girl. And it showed the Great Northern and the Falls. So you had the deer head. So you go back to that whole bank scene where Truman and, and Cooper are going to see the uh, Laura's safety deposit mm -hmm. box. And there's a deer head on the on the table. And we remember the reason for that was his crew was supposed to hang up that deer head and it wouldn't stay. And Lynch was like, just leave it there and we'll make it part of the scene. And then who should come in but Lucy, Lucy and, and Andy. Andy. Andy doesn't, I don't think, have any, any dialogue. But they're both there together in this commercial. And they have cups of coffee. Coffee, which Lucy would bring. Right. The most interesting part, this Georgia coffee is in a can. Yes. It almost seems like blasphemy. Like, it's not freshly brewed. It's funny that Cooper is selling canned coffee. Like, it's I, think, canned, Cooper, it's I cold. think the real Cooper would be like, this is blasphemy. How dare you give I me... Know. Lucy comes in to give him coffee, and he's saying, no, no, no. I don't want that coffee. I want <laughs> Georgia. Georgia canned coffee. And you gotta love that thunderstorm. Like, like he waves his hand, and it's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some canned coffee in my pocket here. Yeah. Now, did they film this on the set? Yeah, they filmed this on the set. Yeah. <sighs> I don't think... I don't think the set was around anymore. I think we can ask Ken, and I don't think the That's set... That's true. So this is after Firewalk With Me, so okay. it's possible they say the set. From everything I learned, I think they had to recreate the sets. And I think in Wrapped in Plastic, Kimmy Robertson, she may have mentioned that they had to recreate the sets. Damn fine coffee. Damn fine coffee. Damn fine coffee. I mean, come on. That saying alone just sells coffee. Yes. Yeah, it's a great tagline. And the log lady shows up, which is cool. It's true. It's true. Bruce very quick to figure things out. He says, I see a symbol. That symbol looks like the symbol I see at Big Ed's uh, gas farm. Uh -huh. And that's going to get us to go. On our adventure. Yeah. Yeah. Drink the coffee. Solve the mystery. <laughs> We're on the yes. show... We usually have always our coffee. coffee. Always. And that usually gets us keep us going here. Maybe that's why we're always so wired, or I know I'm always Yeah, yeah. Up. I mean I save my second cup on the day we record for this podcast. Yes. So nice. We're drunk off coffee at all yes, times. All the time. So then the last shot is Cooper and Ken out in the woods and they're giving thumbs up to each other. And it's like Georgia coffee. coffee. Hi, is this Taka? 
Hi, Ben. You were a part of the Twin Peaks Georgia coffee commercials. Can you talk to us about how uh, you got the job to work on the sh- commercials? I took the audition for the King character. Did you audition for David Lynch? No, I, I took the audition in Japan. Mm. And they sent my audition film to the United States to Mr. David Lynch. Had you watched uh, Twin Peaks mm. before getting the job? Did you know about the show? Oh, yeah. Were you yeah, a that fan? Was a famous show. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just the beginning, I, I think. And how long did it take yeah. to, sh- to shoot the commercials? Maybe around one week. That's pretty cool. So four commercials all done in, in a week span. Wow. That seems pretty long for these commercials, but I guess there's a lot of work that goes into commercials. Oh, yeah. Even 30 seconds. Yeah. The second commercial is called Cherry Pie. Samishka, a very rare Von Singer Weibel. Snooker balls? I don't get it. Come on, let's grab a bite in the can of Georgia. Agent Cooper? Shelly, I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. It's called Georgia Coffee. Comes in a can. Tastes as good and rich as any cup of coffee I've ever had. It's true. Are you Ken? Yes. A beautiful woman left this here for you. Georgia ni makasero. Cherry pie. They see a car. <laughs> pool ball. It looks like balls in the pool holder which resembles cherry pie. They go into the diner. Cooper's making a leap there, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Were they even at Big... Well, they're at Big Ed's. They saw the car. They went right to the diner. So her car was there, and for some strange reason, she had... Pool ball holder, and it had... That resembled the shape of a cherry pie. Yeah. It seems like a leap. It's a big leap. And then they go to the diner. We get to see Shelly, which was cool. And the log lady seems to be just following them. Wherever they go, there's a lot. It's true. It's true. It's true. Yes. And then again, you know, we have Shelly who, like, will give him some fresh coffee. He's like, oh, no, I don't want the fresh coffee. I want Georgia coffee. I want this crap from a can. (laughs) And, you know, I guess it's just so popular in Japan. These uh, instant coffee is very popular over there, right? Very. I mean, like, they have hundreds of different kinds. I mean, why would you turn away coffee from Shelly's beyond me? Now they're drinking coffee. And they must. Where are they keeping these cans? They're whipping them out. I've got 20 of them in my pocket. Yeah. Cooper's jacket must be very heavy because he's got, like, a six-pack. And can you imagine, like, going to, like, a diner and being like, I'd like to give you some coffee. It's like, oh, no, I've been keeping it in my my I pull out a couple of Dunkin' Donuts. I got my own. You want a cherry pie? I brought my own. No. Shelly does give uh, Ken an origami. Origami. And she said she got that from... A beautiful woman. A beautiful woman. Who a, seems a, to be his girl. Yeah. And it's an origami of like a swan. So I love that. Again, there, you got the thumbs up. You got Shelly and you got Cooper and you got Ken all doing the thumbs yeah, up. Yeah, it's adorable. That's so, and yeah. it's great that this place plays in the double R. I mean, I love that we get to go... I mean, again, I don't know where they actually shot this, but it's great to ha- have that feel that we're, we're there for a second. We're in the they, double R. They captured the Twin Peaks feel, which yeah. is cool. And I was wondering, beside the American film crew, was there a Japanese crew as well? Most of them is American crew. And then just uh, commercial companies, mm-hmm. people is following. That's all. When did you guys mm-hmm. end up shooting the commercials? Uh, was it in the um, March, summer of 92-ish time? Uh, this question is, I forgot. Already, <laughs> it was twenty. It was twenty-five <laughs> years already. ago. It was a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Where did you guys uh, film the commercials? Because, I mean, it looks like you're really there, you know? Did they make a set? Yeah, at the, we went to the Hollywood studio. And so it was all done in the U.S.? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, U.S. You probably don't know this, but do you know if they, they use the sets from the TV show? Or do they recreate the sets? I'm, I'm not sure, but uh, there was a coffee shop, right? Yeah, the coffee diner? Shop. Yes, the yeah. diner, yeah, yeah. yeah. Diner, yeah, and the log readies over there, and that's that's a that's a set, hmm. original set, right? Oh, wow, yeah, yeah, I I told. So it's great that they have Badamente's music as well. We have a little bit of the Twin Peaks theme song, mm. yeah, and we have true. Badamente's Dance of a Dream Man music, which was kind of Agent Cooper's unofficial theme song. Mm. It's Pretty great cool. that I mean, so that's what I think really brings the feel of Twin Peaks that music. Yes, the Dream Man. He is the Dream Man. Yeah. Yes. So we are now up to the third commercial, Mystery of G. What do you think it means? I don't know, Ken. Letter G. How about a couple of Georgia coffees while we think about it? Hooper? Hawk, you're going to love Georgia coffee. It's brewed rich. Tastes incredible. Damn fine coffee, right? Right. It's true. Agent Cooper, look what happens when I connect the pins. The letter G. Good work, Andy. Hawk, what's under that last pin? Glastonbury Grove. Home of the Black Lodge. So we found out that uh, the origami swan has the letter G on it. We're back at the sheriff's department. And the G, letter G stands for Georgia Coffee? Yeah. <laughs> or it could stand for Glastonbury Grove. Grove. They put the string on the map and Andy is the one who figured it out. There's a couple times in, in the series that we have a board that Cooper uses to mm. try and figure out things. One of the times is when the whole rock throwing, he he uses a board to demonstrate things. They're focused on the letter J. Mm. Remember, yeah, Laura yeah. Palmer wrote in her diary, worried about meeting J tonight. And so here we, we're focused G, on the letter G. G so it, yeah. it was, Come to find out, Laura was really talking about G and Georgia Coffee. Yes, all along. All along was Georgia Coffee that killed her. It wasn't a fresh batch. But I like how they kind of, they're playing with that whole letter yeah. thing again. Yeah. And of course we have the letters under the fingernails. But then the other, what you were getting at too is that Andy is one looking at the map. All I, her locations equal a G. Because I have to imagine they've been to multiple places and each stop they've been to creates this G. I guess, so, yeah. Right? Because how guess, the hell did they make it a G? I don't, but I have a hard time believing that's where the diner is and, and where everything is. It doesn't Me, quite fit. Nothing we, fits. Nothing. nothing fits. And then Lucy, she's now come with, with cans of Georgia coffee. She's learned from what Cooper wants now. She no longer brings yes. fresh hot coffee. She's going to bring canned coffee. Because she got to make her boys happy. Uh, she knows yeah. what she to knows do. She knows what to do. She knows we need, need donuts yeah. and donuts canned and coffee. Canned coffee. <laughs> Oh, man. Life's finest. No, but that G, to me, represents every stop because why would they even put those in the map that would... Why? You know, it's like just... And maybe Andy was just having fun. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Who knows? Maybe you're right. That could be it, too. Andy was just like, oh, I made a G. Look at that. Good job, Andy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he does smile when he, when he says, oh, you figured it out. And I'm going to tell you, you have it frozen right here. There's a picture 
uh, after Cooper drinking it. He doesn't look like he's enjoying it's this. Kind of like a bitter, a like, bitter, like oh god, I gotta like, drink another one of these. Drink, <laughs> I've been drinking this all week long. I'm tired of drinking it. I said no to Firewalk with me, but I said yes to these commercials. <laughs> what was I thinking? And I will say these commercials, they, I mean, they're fun. They're like, fun. Yeah. Nah. And Lynch had a lot of fun doing it, and I think they pay very well today. Celebrities and commercials is cool, but. Back in the 80s and the 90s, it was kind of like people didn't want to be associated with commercials that like could be selling out. Mm. So they would make commercials overseas. We right. would never see them, but they, they'd make Buko Buck. Yeah, Woody Allen, uh, director, he would do silly stuff. There would be all kinds of actors yeah. who would do stuff. And they, yeah, it was okay to do it in Japan, but they would They, they never, wouldn't do it here. Right. But now, it doesn't matter. I think yeah. they, they do them all the time now. I agree. And and so on Lynch on Lynch, David Lynch basically said that. He feel like it was it would tarnish the Twin Peaks image if it was shown worldwide. Mm. But because it was just being played in Japan, he was all right with, with making these commercials. <laughs> and, <laughs> Very interesting. And it's interesting that, you know, so it never did air in the United States. And there was actually contractual agreements prohibiting the commercials from being broadcast outside of Japan. Luckily, we now have them on DVD, on the gold box, but yeah. we don't have them on the Blu-ray. Which no. it's probably the, you know, there's only two things I wish was on the Blu-ray. It's these Georgia Coffee commercials and the Saturday Night Live. Yeah, skit. I mean they are on YouTube, but the quality isn't that good. And Log Lady shows up again. Log Lady shows up again. I love how she's like flipping the light on and off, just like she did in the pilot. That's not, and it's true. <laughs> it's true, and she's following them. So it looks like we're going to Glastonbury Grove. Where was the mm-hmm. last the last commercial shot? Uh, chapter four, of the rescue. Was it shot uh, uh, mm-hmm. actually in the woods, or did it uh, around, around the Los Angeles? Okay. Uh, around the Los Angeles, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. And so uh, there was some woods beside the lake, or, or something like. Yeah. 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 W- yeah. And were these commercials uh, scripted? Did you have a script to memorize? Yeah, we have a script. Do you know how long the commercials ran in Japan? Around three months, I think. And now for the last commercial, The Rescue. That's where I'll find the Sami. Watch. The Black Lodge isn't in this world. Inside there's a red room. A Sami. Georgia. Great idea, Ken. Brewed rich. Tastes incredible. Georgia's all around. Georgia. That's the oddest one. It feels the most rushed, which is weird to say that in the 30 seconds. I feel like we could have got two more out of that. Yeah. Like a rescue and then a celebration. Right. You know? I do like that we kind of go back to the episode 29 where they're the whole red room and they've gone to the sycamore trees and they're Glastonbury Grove and they're rescuing her. It's odd. Like, why did, how did she get in the Black Lodge? And how did how, he rescue her so easily? Right. He had trouble, you know, like, clearly this is not canon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when they're all standing there at the very end, Oh, and then and then Log Lady shows up. She says, "Watch, watch." So all this other time, it's true, but this one is like, "Watch." watch. So like, it's almost like, "Pay attention." This is it. This is the last one. Yeah. 
Who's like at the very end? They're all standing there drinking, and there's all these flashlights shining at them. Where are those flashlights coming from? <laughs> That's a lot of questions. They they brought the whole uh, they brought the whole uh, sheriff department. Yeah, and they, they probably did. did. Yeah. You didn't see them; they were off camera. It. And clearly, they're using some footage from episode twenty nine. You have uh, Cooper going into the red room. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of that is probably just taken from episode twenty nine. Yeah, probably yeah. because you mix it together. I like that we go back to yeah. the sycamore trees there and have that moment. And I know it's rushed, but it's still it's still kind of cool. Yeah, it's cool. So maybe this is a good time <laughs> to talk about my Josie connection that there is no real connection to. But I will I will make this stretch. We Let's were talking earlier about the drawer knob. Yeah, the drawer pull. So there was this storyline that never happened where Josie was going to be stuck in the Black Lodge. And they had, I think we've talked about this before, they had another actress who they actually filmed stuff, or we, at least we have p- proof, there's pictures. So Richard Beamer mm-hmm. took pictures on the, on the last week or so of, of episode 29, mm-hmm. and he has pictures, he took pictures of the actress who was stuck in the red room. So here's my leap. First of all, <laughs> I know that Josie is, is from China, mm-hmm. and this uh, this woman is from Japan. They're from Asia yep. areas. I, I don't want anybody thinking that I don't know the difference. What I'm kind of getting at is that you have this idea of Josie being trapped in the Red Room, and I do wonder if, if Lynch, when he was making these commercials, thought about that. Because he's the one that he's the one that thought up the drawer knob. He shot the actors for the red room, so there, he had this thought of actually having, having Josie there. in there. So I do wonder if he had that idea, and then when he was making these commercials, he thought, "Hey, why don't I just still play with that idea of a woman trapped in the Black Lodge?" Mm. It's a stretch, but I still think it's kind of interesting these ideas that he maybe was working with. And from the th- the clues she left them, I don't know what she did to deserve to go to the Black Lodge. She was a I think she was gambling. She was a she was a pool player. Right? She played pool and she was a hustler. And she got herself in a little trouble, right? Because she owed people money. She was hustling them. And she ran away and she ended up in Twin Peaks trying to escape the hustle. I think when Variety first mentioned that David Lynch was working on these commercials, I think the idea was it was a Japanese tourist who was coming to Twin Peaks, and ah. she she got, went missing. So I don't know. She was just there visiting, and... I like my hustler pool. Because like why does she have a pool balls in her car? Right. That's weird. The pool balls were all red. Usually when you play pool, they're different colors. Yeah. You have a black ball, a white ball, and yeah. these were all red, red like cherries. But why was a clue on the deer head that led to Big Ed's to see her car? How does a deer head have a clue? So there was talk about doing four more of these commercials. Like, it would be like Ooh. a sequel to this. Yeah. And I guess they weren't happy. They didn't do well. I don't know how they gauge and say that, but it's, for whatever reason, this, these commercials I think they gauge if their product is selling during these. That's how you gauge. You say, if, if product goes up because these commercials are working, it's very American for this type of commercial. It's very Americanized. It's true. You know, they, they only speak Japanese at the very end. Yeah. Right? And you're using American characters. I think if this was more aimed towards them, it might have worked better. But it's very aimed towards us, I feel like. I think you're right. And on, and on Lynch and Lynch, David Lynch has to say, the Georgia Coffee Company felt that they wanted them to be more traditional. Mm. And that... And so they weren't traditional in the sense of how they usually do commercials yeah. in Japan. So yeah. it wasn't their style. Yeah. And, it, it you know, when you're not speaking to your audience, 
it's not going to work. Yeah, it's funny because I I thought they were so good, well done. Like to have all these actors from the show, and it's really quick pace for Lynch. There's a lot of detail and a lot of information packed into 30 seconds. Yeah, but you, if you if we were to flip that coin, we took a popular uh, Japanese show, and they made a commercial from a show that came here mm. and had somewhat successful here, and they spoke Japanese to the whole thing, and they only spoke English at the very mm, end. Good point. Would we would we be turned off by that? I, you're right. I think I would be like uh, I think I would be scratching my head saying, "What is this?" Yeah, and I mean that to me is the most puzzling part of these commercials. Ken does not speak Japanese until the last one. They're not pandering towards their audience. It's weird. So I can see why they weren't successful. Um, it, I'm glad they exist. They're very cool and fun to watch. But uh, a marketing standpoint. It makes no sense, you know. Mm. How was it being directed by David Lynch? That's, that was fun. That was fantastic experience for me. He's a very gentle guy, you know. Yeah, yeah he seems to be. I imagine that uh, you mostly had Japanese directors. Had you worked with an American director in the past? Mr. David Lynch is the first director that I work with, American. How was the mood on the set? Was it up, you know, just having fun or? Very good. Very, very organized. Very smooth. And what was it like working with the actors? You got most of the time you spent with Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah, Kyle was kind too. So what was the reaction like? In Japan, for these from these commercials, did you get recognized everywhere you went? A sort of. I've heard originally that there was supposed to be a second series of commercials. Did anybody ever approach you about possibly uh, playing Ken again? At first, commercial companies, people, they gonna be uh, other series, but they skipped that idea. I think. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> Too much money spent. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think if they had done a second series, that maybe you would have been approached to play the character again? Yeah, of course, of course, yeah, of course. Yeah, commercial's main character is merchandise. Main character is not actors. The merchandise is a main character, right? Yes. That's commercial job. That's yeah. true. Yeah. I drank a lot of canned coffee <laughs> <laughs> at that time. Any projects you want to share or anything that's that you're doing currently? I'm still doing actor, also I uh, acting trainer and script writer and director now. Wow. So from commercial to the man who does it all. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Taka. We appreciate Say hello it. hello to the fans. So great to be able to talk to Taka. I mean, yes, it's really special because I don't think he's ever done an interview about Twin Peaks. So it was still kind of cool 25 years later to be able to talk to this actor about this commercial. I mean, this is a this is a strange one to get. It was a hard one to get because I mean, you know, with commercials, you don't usually have like who are the actors in this commercial. You don't have credits at the end of the commercial and be like, oh, I can that's talk of yeah and so like that. So thank God for Wrapped in Plastic, they had the actors' names to give you a little behind the scenes. It still wasn't easy to reach out to Taka because. There was no email. There was no easy way. I actually wrote snail mail. I had to write, you know, write wow. to Taka's people mm. about like whether he'd come on the show. And then, so that was. I'm not used to having to write a letter, like wow. a old-fashioned letter. And it was very nice that he, he personally got back to me. Which usually, you know, when we do these shows, sometimes it might be an agent, it might be other person that basically confirms it. But he was nice enough to say yes to doing this. Mm. I thought it was just special. I mean, it was really cool yeah. that it, to him to give us the time. And thank you so much, Taka, for your time. Yeah, and I mean, it. a little behind the scenes, though, it was, it was a rough one to call him. 
but we did it. We have, we have the worst tr- trouble calling outside the yeah. country. I mean, we have trouble even calling UK. I mean, what have we done? We've done UK, Denmark, uh, Australia. Australia. We did Australia. So we, yeah. every time we try to call outside the country, I don't know. We, we are just. It's a, it's, it's a it's process. Like, how many numbers do we call? What but his code? was the toughest. It was crazy. Yeah. And we did it. And I was very proud of us. Right. It only took us 20 minutes. It is now time for. Lost in Twin Peaks. Peaks, 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 peaks. feminist criticism of Twin Peaks, really both pro and con. I, I don't know that there's that many that are kind of in between. There are a few that I can think of, but like for the most part, they seem to be either arguing by and large for it or against it as being, it, it, a lot of them would claim it is a feminist work and then others would say it's actually like a misogynist work. So there's pretty divided response in that sense. I would say that seems to be the mode of analysis of the ideology that Twin Peaks has been most analyzed through. There aren't, as far as political analyses go, I think that's that's the one, and it's sort of easy to see why. I mean, it's a show about a dead girl, a girl who was murdered, a girl who it turns out was abused. So there's a lot of questions. How does it deal with that? Does it kind of match up with real-world situations, or is it sort of presenting a very skewed vision of that? So that makes sense. But there are also analyses, especially of Lynch as a whole, that kind of look at him through a larger political context as well. So I thought, I thought in light of the election and this whole season of debate and arguments and all of that, an analysis on a good day, kind of be an interesting person to look at through. Well, something I thought about, like especially the, the the first season, I felt like how this town was was in mourning for this girl in their town. At least maybe in the society that I live in, it, it, and see, you think of it, this was in, this was in 1990, but they were actually re, um, creating the scripts in 89, and I felt like the big 80s became the me generation, and it was less about everybody else, it seemed, anyway. So I, I wondered if it, in some way they're making a commentary about about we're not really as close to our community anymore. That's a really interesting point, and that actually kind of gets into an interesting element, which is like a lot of times I feel like when we talk about political uh, viewpoints, it's like liberal versus conservative, Mm. um, and it's sort of this somewhat reductive take. I think it makes sense to say, I kind of prefer terms left-wing and right-wing and maybe centrist, because in a way, even though they're more vague, they're a little more clear, Mm. because um, liberal, conservative kind of they have definitions outside of politics that kind of get wrapped up in it and confuse people. The interesting thing about about what you're saying is it kind of brings up that there's different visions. People have called Lynch conservative and Twin Peaks sort of a conservative show in some ways, which um, I think is, is definitely debatable, but it, it brings up that question of, well, what 
what type of conservatism because there is a there's this, this sort of a cultural conservatism that you're talking about of like a community coming together mm. and sort of sharing values and looking out for one another and sort of that like archetypal small town Americana traditional communitarianism but that's very different from what the sort of conservatism I mean it was connected to it mm. um, especially in terms of how Republicans would sort of sell themselves to the public yeah they would present this as we're family values old Americana you know vote for us but really the type of conservatism that really came to the forefront in the 80s was very anti-communitarian in a way pro-corporate and, and sort of focusing on sort of a, I can't even really call it fiscal conservatism because it wasn't about paying down the debt or anything like mm. that but, you know um basically rewarding corporations, huge tax cuts, um, deregulation, and all a lot of those things had very deleterious um, effects on communities. And, and actually, you'll see sometimes in, in sort of democratic rhetoric of the 80s that they, especially if they're trying to run away from, okay, well, you know, in the 60s and 70s, we kind of, well, maybe the 70s, we got associated with sort of the, the counterculture and this sort of anti- or perceived as anti-American, you know, anti-family values, blah, blah, blah. But they saw that the the, the right was kind of um, advancing those values in their own way by embracing super growth and corporate raiders and stuff that was taking apart small businesses in these little mm. communities. And, you know, eventually supporting, as the Democrats did too, supporting trade agreements that ship jobs out of these communities. And so it's so a really, the type of community you're talking about in Twin Peaks that already seemed a little bit retrograde in 1990, mm. um, in one sense, that's a conservative thing. In another sense, it's, um, I wouldn't say a liberal thing or a left-wing thing, but it's something that ran up against um, the dominant currents in conservatism at that time. So it's kind of an interesting um conflict. I think for me, the interesting thing to look at with Lynch in general, just in terms of politics, he's actually been kind of all over the map. So, and I think not just because he's being random, I think he seems to have had some sort of political evolution in his own outlook, which is in the 80s, he was a Reagan Republican, which always shocks people because Hmm. he made these very transgressive films. I mean, Blue Velvet, I doubt Ronald Reagan screened Blue Velvet at the White House. And a lot of people saw it as like an anti-Reagan film. They said, look, he's showing the small town, but then he's showing this ugliness underneath and that he, you know, that he's making fun of the picket fences and the suburban golly gee whiz, Nancy Drew. And, but as you and I know, and I think most Lynch fans know, it's a little more complicated than that. He's obviously very sympathetic with that, even though he presents it in a, a sort of a knowing way, but then again, you look at him, his personality, and you go, well, maybe he's, maybe it isn't supposed to be. <laughs> like, he doesn't seem like he's presenting himself, ironically, you know. Mm. Um, and that is kind of who he is. He's, he's uh, is, I think, uh, Stuart Cornfell called him Jimmy Stewart from Mars or something right. like that. So, so he really does kind of have that G-Wiz, All-American, all shucks kind of vibe. Boy Scout. Um, Exactly, Eagle Scout. And Eagle think, Scout, right. He, really started, he was really playing that up in the late 80s, early 90s. I think to an extent, um, you know, I think he was always sincere, but he did know kind of what people found interesting. with it, And people found interesting that he was like this combination of like a sort of traditional-seeming, old-fashioned American, hmm. all-American type 
who also made this really subversive avant-garde art. There's always kind of been this association in people's minds of like sort of political and artistic rebellion. Political rebellion is usually found on the left, you know. So those things are sort of seen to go together, and they often do. I think the 60s really solidified that. The idea that if you're, you know, a bohemian, you're also maybe a revolutionary, and the two things are kind of hand in hand. But really, if you go back through history and you look, there is a history of avant-garde being um, somewhat to the right, and there, I think there's a few reasons for that. One is it's a very individualist uh, form of creation, especially in America. There's this strain of like, well, if you're an individualist, you're on the right, you know, which I think is questionable. But there is that sort of perception, you know, oh, I'm 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 against the collective, I'm against the state, I must be on the right, you know. Right. So there's that kind of element. He's, he's always, I think, he still has that kind of libertarian streak in him. Maybe even has described himself as having a somewhat libertarian sensibility, you know. So, so that's one way that it overlaps. But I think with Lynch in particular, you can see, and especially in his early films, he's fascinated by the dark side. He's fascinated by sort of gross, icky, uh, dirty, nasty type of stuff. But he identifies it as negative. He doesn't celebrate it, really. He, he's, he's sort of he's fascinated by it, and he digs into it, but the narratives of his films, you know, and he always is a narrative artist as well as a formal master. He's, you know, he, he doesn't... The story isn't shouldn't be disregarded, I think, with his work. I mean, really, I'd call some of the early films definitely conservative. I think Elephant Man is actually a fairly conservative film in several senses, um, but one of which is, from a class perspective, if you look at how the heroes and the villains in that movie are positioned, the elephant man is really harassed and tormented by the working class. Other than the nurses, you know, they're pretty sympathetic, but anybody who doesn't have sort of a good job in, like, the hospital is just sort of these leering proletarian drunks who come and harass him in his room, and then his protectors are these sort of benevolent... Um, bourgeois officials and professionals, people like the Anthony Hopkins character and that that committee where they have the Queen sister comes in and says Queen Victoria herself, hmm. you know, is protecting. So he's really protected by this benevolent upper class and harassed by a lower class. Kind of an interesting thing. And it you is. almost don't notice it. Once you kind of see it, you're like, oh, yeah, that is weird. So And people sort of hmm. criticize Lynch consistently for that. I mean, this is obvious, but would you say that somebody's own politics or views affects their work? That's a great question. Um, so Lynch himself said a number of times he had no, and I think still says, he has no interest whatsoever in, a, in expressing a political viewpoint in his work or really expressing any sort of message at all, let alone political. I guess we can sort of dovetail that into the spring of 1990 when the show came out and people were covering and talking about the show and really it was almost entirely praised um, by almost every critic when the pilot came out. One of the few people who sort of had a critical take was uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum, the famous film critic. So there was another critic, Terrence Rafferty, who wrote about uh, Lynch for The New Yorker and compared him to Louis Bunuel, said this is like, you know, television's answer to these great surrealist films of the 1960s and 70s and stuff like that. Mm. And Rosenbaum took issue with that, and he said, uh, there's something wistfully, desperately, and quintessentially American, as well as postmodernist, 
about collapsing a Marxist anarchist devoted to the overthrow of bourgeois complacency, and initially civilization itself, into a formalist with no interest, whatever, in altering the status quo. So the first person he's talking about is Bunuel, who was a uh, communist and uh, an outcast and exiled for many years, you know, opposed the, the fascist regime in Spain, and his work expressed that political viewpoint. He's contrasting with Lynch, basically calling him a formalist with no interest whatever in altering the status quo. Hmm. Um, so really, I don't think he, he, from his standpoint, he's not really criticizing him as a conservative. He's criticizing him as maybe um, instinctively, fundamentally conservative, but basically apolitical. And I think that was a very common take on Twin Peaks hmm. at this point. was like, oh, this is beautiful. This is weird. Is it really saying something? Does it really have any sort of critique? No, not really. You know, and there was that famous quote, um, <laughs> maybe all it has in its pretty little mind is the desire to please. So from this article by Tom Shales in the Washington Post in 1990, at the mention of Reagan's name, Lynch's pale eyes light up. Oh, yeah, he says, I like him because he was so sort of happy. A Hollywood actor, happy, clears brush, rides a horse, sharp dresser, nice neat haircut. Did he vote for Reagan? Oh yeah, people got very upset with me. I've met him at the White House twice, and then I went to see him at his office in Los Angeles. Wow. So he was. This was something he actually talked about. And then later, he he really kind of. It's interesting um, when he was asked later about Reagan and his views on Reagan. He, first, he kind of dodged the subject a little. There's an interview he gave with Mark Cousins in the late '90s. Um, and Mark Cousins is the Irish, the Irish critic who um, made the documentary The Story of Film, which is this great, recommended highly, I think it was on Netflix, this great um, documentary miniseries where it's a very personalized view of all cinema history, and he hmm. takes you into all these unique corners. But he's very political, and he seemed to want to press uh, Lynch on this subject. Cousins asked him, you know, well, what about Reagan? I know you like Reagan. You met him. Lynch kind of go, I, well, I don't know what Reagan would think. Um, you know, that's not really my, I'm not that political. And hmm. like, well, wait, what do you mean? And this was late 90s, so he was already started to shift a little. The most interesting sort of view of Lynch as somehow conservative or whatever, I think comes in actually the National Review. In October 1990, they published a cover story with Wild at Heart on the cover, and basically celebrated Lynch as a conservative experimental filmmaker. Wow. And this was by a specific person named Joseph Sobran, who later was basically fired from National Review because William F. Buckley felt that he was dabbling too much into anti-Semitism. And then about 10 or 15 years after that, he was appearing at panels with Holocaust deniers and stuff oh, like man. that. So he kind of... His star kind of fell within the uh, conservative movement, and he said, uh, Lynch is all the rage right now, thanks to his explosive hit, Blue Velvet. I don't know why he called it an explosive hit. It, was, it did well, but it wasn't you know, a blockbuster. But anyways, and his TV series, Twin Peaks. Both are formulaically said to reveal the dark underside of middle America, which makes them sound like exposés, as if Lynch were your basic left-wing, avant-garde muckraker of the national soul. Perish the thought. He's a 44-year-old former Eagle Scout who is said to adore Ronald Reagan, probably in unrequited passion, and whose only known addiction now conquered is milkshakes. Interviews show him to be something of an eccentric himself, given to ancient boyish locutions like Golly and Neat. So we kind of get that. We've already sort of covered that, that response. But then this guy says, uh, for all of their violence, his films aren't cruel to the viewer in the manner of Total Recall and 100 Slash movies. But basically says, Lynch is, Lynch is showing, you know, he's, he's cool, he's hip, he's showing how weird America is, but he's not anti-American, and he has a moral outlook, and, 
you know, we should celebrate him. And so, so that's a very interesting, um, you know, perspective. And I think even today, most people just kind of assume, oh, Linshoff the experimental must be kind of, you know, the right wingers must hate him, and a lot of them do. But this guy, this guy liked him, and and there seemed to have been some other sort of conservatives who saw him as a, as you know, a kindred spirit or whatever. So around that same time, he did a Rolling Stone interview. I'll read a little sample of that. One of the confusions seems to be over whether art has to mean anything. Let me quote you. I don't know why people expect art to make sense when they accept the fact that life doesn't make sense. And Lynch says, maybe some of it does, but for me, I'm of the Western Union school. If you want to send a message, go to Western Union. So, (laughs) he's he's not, definitely does not want to have a conscious message there. And now time for community feedback. So, Ben, we have been getting feedback like crazy. I have to say, my plea and my goal for Facebook has worked. I said... Thank you, everyone. Yeah, thank you to the community. I said, let's hit 475. 475, it's a good goal. It's a good goal. Guess what? What? We're at 481. Awesome. As, as of right now, as recording this. I say, by next week... Uh, let's try to hit 500. If we can do that, that's the next goal. That would be awesome. Uh, thank you for thank everybody. You so much. Like influx of likes. It was just like 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 like, and I loved it. You know, Facebook. I tr- I, I I do the Facebook. Ben does the Twitter. Um, we try to have a, a parody between the two for most things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's easier to have a conversations on Twitter. And yeah. I'm on Twitter a lot under my handle, having conversations with you and others, which is fun. That's a lot of fun. And I think with Facebook, there is we're getting more uh, conversation under posts and stuff, which is mm. cool. Comments and liking and sharing. Some stuff is getting shared. And it's it's a lot of fun. So, you know, thank you for everybody who liked us. And also, we hit a milestone on iTunes, and um, we have had a small influx of uh, comments. We've been rated 40 times on iTunes. Awesome. Um, That means 40 people have come out and gave us a one or two or three or four or five-star rating. Only five. Thank you for those five. Yes, give us those fives. Um, But I want to read a couple of the five-star reviews that we got on iTunes. Uh, We got one by Icy Jones on April 18th. Twin Peaks Unwrapped is a podcast staple for me, which is cool. Thank you. I learned about it when attending the Great Southern. So this person we may have met. We may have met. Interesting. You know, Icy Jones, if you're listening, email us at twinpeaksunwrapped.gmail.com and uh, let us know if, if we had met you. I don't know. And I've listened weekly ever since. It's great to catch up on old episodes as Ben and Brian watch the series. So they're kind of starting from the beginning, which is really cool. That's nice, yeah. That's awesome. I really think that this has grown since then. As the interview segments and flow of the show improve every week. I hope to meet Ben and Brian at some upcoming Twin Peaks event and tell them in person how much they 
brain each week. Oh, and I hate iTunes. And made an account just to write a review. That will tell you something as well. So we didn't meet this person, but we appreciate the fact you made an account on iTunes. That's awesome. To uh, rate us. That, wow. that, that means a lot. That is That, that means a lot. It really that does. does. To, to actually go through that. Thank you so much for doing that, and thank you for the review. Yeah, and I hate making accounts for things I may not use. Yes. And sometimes you have to, but the fact that you did this just to give us a review is awesome. That is so cool. That's thank cool. you so much for doing that. It's really yeah. nice. Yeah. The, the uh, Twin Peaks community strikes again. And we got a quick one. This one was on April 19th as well by Most Drunk Fan. So this fan is... Drunk, mostly drunk, drunk at all times. I don't know. Five-star review. Keep up the great work. Can't wait to listen along with you for the revival. And we can't wait either. Oh, God. It's going to be so exciting. Uh, We're getting close. We're so close. So close. And I'll read the last one. We got on April 19th by Twin Pete's. We know Twin Pete's. We know Twin Pete's? Yeah. He's actually been at the Great Southern, too. I don't know if we talked to him, but he was there. Oh. And, he, and you might not know, but you've had conversations with him on Twitter. Oh, okay. Do Pete. We, do, oh, okay, okay. I mean, yeah, he's around. He's a nice guy and All stuff. right. So, okay. All right. That's awesome. Ben and Brian rock, or is it Brian and Ben? Question mark. Five-star review. He writes, I'm a little late to the Twin Peaks podcast party. Say that 10 times fast. <laughs> So I only got tuned in to this unique pair when they casted from a local Peaks Festival in 2016, which was a lot of fun. We we went Facebook Live with that. Remember that? Great Southern? The Great Southern. We yeah. did Facebook Live, which I'm sure we'll do maybe some more right. at the big festival. That would be cool. Very exciting. Since then, I've listened to their style and content grow like a Douglas fir and wait pa- impatiently every week as they drop new nuggets, top guests, and high-power ultra fans on their listeners. Ben's and Brian's voice and energies, Ben's the veteran TP watcher, Brian was the noob, set them apart. These guys are completely dedicated to sending us back into those dark and wonderful woods. And their takes on all Lynch and Lynch-inspired works are a great way to get your weird on. That's a great review. Yeah, thank you, Pete. That was really awesome. I appreciate it. That was so cool. That could be a new tagline. Twin Peaks Unwrapped. A great way to get your weird on. Great way to get, <laughs> get your, your weird, weird on. on. Um, uh, no, that's cool. I like those three reviews. And we got them, like, literally in two days. And um, we do appreciate it. And we would love it. If, if, if you're listening and you haven't gone out and done a review, make an account, make an iTunes account. And, yeah. And if, if this guy, if this person can do that, I know you can do the same thing. Make an account. Write us a review. It means so much to us. Yeah, and this is allowing us right. and others in the Twin Peaks podcast community be seen. Mm. And this will get one of us, I don't care who, if it's us or them or whomever, on the iTunes Top 50 of TV and film when it comes to season three. I think how iTunes work is, is partially on these reviews and, the, and these yeah. rating systems. So because of you guys, we're able to get to be one of the one of the top Twin Peaks podcasts. Us and then everybody. All our friends, Diane, Barkwood and 21. Brad Dukes. Brad Dukes, of course. Uh, uh, Dear Esperanto. Dear Metal Radio and amongst others. Right. But it's so nice. I mean, but it, it's because of you guys and we thank you and yeah. I hope that you haven't yet. Please go there, go to iTunes and write us a review. 
Other than that, if you have a comment, a question, or a review, you would like to just email us at twinpeaksunwrapped at gmail.com. So our phone lines are open. You leave us a message, 866-8-UNWRAP. That's 866-8-U-N-W-R-A-P. And Brian, next week. It's a big one. It's our big one. It's our 100th episode. Yeah. We have some big surprises for you. It's going to be an awesome show. Um, we got a lot of cool things. Another great show, Brian. Yeah. Another one in the bank. Uh, next week, our 100th episode. Um, How is it that we've been doing the show this long? I don't even know. <laughs> it's gone by so quickly. It's been two years. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I thought I thought the show would run a, a year. You know, I thought, like, okay, we'll get through the uh, the series, the movie, and then the new show will come out, and we'll be done. One year. Yeah, yeah. That ain't going <laughs> to happen. So this is awesome. Very exciting for next week. So join us uh, for our 100th episode. And with that, we'll leave you with this. When you look at a lot of American actors and directors today, they're quite involved with politics. And in the past, of course, famous Hollywood supported Adlai Stevenson and supported uh, JFK and things like this. Do you feel, well, you're smiling, why are you smiling that? <laughs> Well, I'm not um, a political person. Oh, yeah? No. So when you look at the way that Hollywood, and it's, and of course it's not all types of politics, it's mostly the Democrat side, not always. When you look at those relationships, are you cynical about that? Or you just no, 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 I'm not it? cynical at all. I'm, I'm just saying that I don't understand um, politics. Um, I don't understand um, uh, the, the concept of, of two sides. And I think that probably uh, there's good on both sides, bad on both sides. And there's a middle ground, but it never seems to come to the middle ground. And it's very frustrating watching it and seemingly we're not going forward. Some, some change of simple, simple, really, relatively speaking, and, and we're going forward somewhere. You know, it could be, it could be a, a, a beautiful place.